dance. So it's about dancing, so let's yeah. fucking dance. Hell Prize Fighters beat. 
We're going to show you how we do it right here. Big Boy Radio. Brought to you in association with Links Property Maintenance. Co.uk. www.scarandsoul.com. For all things Trojan, from button down shirts to classic tees and knitwear, monkey jackets, Harrington's, and even Parkers. It has to be scarandsoul.com for the spirit of 69. And don't forget to mention Boot Boy Radio. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Rude boys, rude girls, skinheads too. My name is Phil and I'm going to play some tunes for you. Yeah, that's right. It is here Thursday night, rock study tonight on Boot Boy Radio. And I've got a special show for you. Towards the end of last week, I had the opportunity to speak with the guys from the Prize Fighters. Sat down and talked a little bit about their new album and their live stream that's going to be on tomorrow night. So I figured this would be the prime time to get this interview done. So without further ado, I'm going to play you some of this interview and a whole bunch of Prize Fighters tunes. I am here with the Prize Fighters from Minneapolis, correct? That's right. Bingo. <laughs> you, you know, I always screw that up. So I'm I'm terrible with uh with locations. I'm I'm even worse with names. How long have you guys been playing together? This is what ten years for you, right? Ten years for the release of our first album but before that we have been playing for about five years i'd say um or maybe four years so we started playing like the kind of tail end of 20 or yeah 2005 is when we started actually working on some tunes together with just you know a few people then first show was, was like spring of 2006 so yeah, it's, it's been almost 15 years now. That's pretty crazy. So we like to call the Price Fighters B. It's not like we're dancing, so let's fucking go wild.
I gotta tell you, I, I I sort of I guess it was probably right around when you guys did uh Firewalk. I it's right around the time I heard you for the first time and it, it really upsets me. I mean everything that I've heard from that point backwards is just amazing. And uh the the release that you guys did with Charlie Organair is absolutely incredible. I mean I I listen to it so much that it's just it's silly. Well we appreciate that. I actually just bought a I guess it was a seven inch off jump up. They had a, one of their sales, so I noticed that they had a seven inch for sale with you guys and, and Charlie Reginaire. So I grabbed it because it was all I could find. Maybe I grabbed two, but uh, I don't know. I keep looking for a release, but I. Yeah, because we did three records, uh, 345s with Charlie Reginaire. And um, yeah, there was it was sort of leading up to the European tour that we did with him in, uh, was it like, yeah late 2014 early 2015 mm-hmm. and uh so we did we flew him up to minneapolis for just a, a quick weekend session we did we did six songs one of those songs he wrote in his hotel room like the morning before we recorded because he you know he was just kind of in that in that recording mood and he was like you know what i'm gonna, I'm gonna write a new song he was just that into it and uh yeah that was on the second of the three singles and i think we sold out of them when we were in europe so either it was it was popular or we didn't get that many of them there. I don't quite recall, but yeah, that one went quick. The music on the uh, a tour CD that we had for that. So I'm very happy I found the two seven inches that I did. So that's great. Yeah, thank you for for buying them. And, and like we uh, we like doing the seven inches because like I know myself in particular, I'm a big record collector. So I just there, there's something about the aesthetic of putting a 45 on and just you know listening to one side at a time. On turntable that is uh it's 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 a very delightful pain in the ass to, uh, absolutely you need to take it off the change the song you know it's funny i just uh got a got a new lp in the mail the other day and it's it's a two lp set and they're, they're both 12 inches but they're 45 rpm and it's i don't know i guess i'm not the audiophile I, i'm like i'm like a music nerd but i'm not an audiophile i'd rather sit down and listen to something for 30 minutes before i have to get up and flip aside but uh, I, I guess when the music is good, though, it doesn't matter. So it's a, it's a pain worth taking. Yeah. I don't know. I guess it's better than having to go and eject an eight track or something. We uh, we met Charlie um, when we were doing um, we we started playing some of these uh, Jamaican oldies shows that were being put on by uh, Jump Up Records down in Chicago. Um, where they would be bringing in um, like some actual Jamaican foundation artists and doing a whole concert series. And um, so back in 2012, I think um, they brought in uh, Stranger Cole and um, Chuck from Jump Up asked us to be um, his backing band. And um, we didn't know this at the time, but then when we did that show, um, they brought in Charlie to do... Um, you know, harmonica on a, a couple of tunes that he he actually uh, was on back in uh, the 60s in Jamaica. So he played harmon- the harmonica solo for Rough and Tough. And uh, that's when we, we met him. And the more that we got to know him, the more I got to understand his, his music. And um, he's got a whole, you know, he was, he was kind of a uh, prolific. He was on all these different tracks back in uh uh, the 60s Jamaica, but he also, you know, wrote his own um, songs. He uh, performed his own songs. He had his own label imprint. Um, I mean, he, he he was he's a legend. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. It's funny though. That's a lot more than I would have ever suspected from him too. I had no idea he had his own label. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was, uh, he was telling me some stories about the, you know, the early days of his time in the music business. So we're talking early sixties here, the ska days. Uh, he had a label called Organaires Records and, you know, only had a couple on that label, but all his own productions and songs that he wrote. Um, but he was just saying how, how hard it was to compete with some of the other big labels, especially uh, you know, ones like Studio One and Treasure Isle, where the owners of the labels also own their own sound systems and were promoting their records, you know, at dances and at jukeboxes and through, you know, various other channels that, uh, you know, small time players couldn't quite compete with. So it's kind of cool in that sense that that Charlie's foray into you know being a producer, being a you know player in the the music scene in Kingston in the '60s was pretty DIY, and you know, even though ska was the the main pop music of that day in Jamaica, like in fact he was still he was putting out records despite the industry being set up to be like the bigger labels, the ones with the more resources and, you know, especially the labels that had their own studios could, uh, you know, they could, people could still put out records. They may not be quite as successful as, you know, something that uh, Coxon produced. Uh, but sometimes, you know, sometimes they were, sometimes it was, you know, sometimes these releases are just, buried and forgotten about and people are still trying to find them and discover them. But uh, having Charlie to you know, be a friend and mentor to talk to about all this kind of stuff is, is incredible because that's, that's a whole story of Jamaican music that you really don't hear from any other source. Like so much of the history of Jamaican music is an oral tradition.
Speaking personally, I'm not keeping an accurate record of everything that I do. So, like, when we go into the studio, it's it's like, as a band, we can go back and reminisce. Like, oh, remember when we when we were recording Firewalk and this happened? And was like, no, that's not how it happened. I was like, okay. We didn't hire a, a stenographer to be there to uh, track every everything that was said, every every note. And it's the same for so many other 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 places in history. So it's 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 just incredible to have a friend who was there and has a very good recall and, and fond recall of all that kind of stuff and we've we've all learned a ton of stuff just from even just from casually bullshitting with charlie you know he's he's honestly one of my favorite people that i've ever that i've ever met very positive very um very good outlook on life and he's he's definitely uh, definitely someone I will look, look up to and hope to work with again once, uh, once some of these restrictions lift, because he's also a damn talented singer and a harmonica player and arranger and all that kind of stuff. So, right. It's funny that, uh, you mentioned that because as I mentioned earlier, when we did the, uh, interview with the Scatolites not too long ago, yeah, we, we asked him, you know, what other young bands out there are you guys keen on? And they didn't really want to name names and they didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings for forgetting to mention them, but they, your name was one of the ones they pulled out of the hat, which uh, is definitely a tremendous nod. I mean, Ken, Ken Stewart had nothing but good things to say. So, yeah, that's awesome. No, we love, we love those guys. We love Ken. I mean, I, anytime they're, they're coming through town, we, we always, uh, we always make a point to either try to talk to them. Sometimes we'll play with them, but um, yeah, they're, they're good folks. Yeah. He's another one that, we talked to him and they said they'd give us an hour and like two and a half hours later, we're still talking to him, you know? And, uh, you start listening to these stories and I mean, more, more than running a podcast. I mean, we're fans of the music. So it's like, if you're going to tell us about Jamaica in the sixties, we're going to listen. I mean, that that's, I was a very late adopter to uh, traditional Jamaican music because when I, when I first started listening to it, I believe it was probably like the Boston's, that uh, that got me into the into the music, and uh, from there I just kind of went upwards with like the third wave of ska because it was like right around the time, you know, mid '90s to the 2000s. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, so it, much happening in those in those days, you know. It's uh, and it wasn't as split style wise. You had all those all the styles being represented, but that was the the exciting thing about that time in ska was was you could you could go listen to Skink and Pickle and 
Hepcat and go back and forth with Pino CDs, but there was that excitement that you weren't really categorizing it as to as to the the place and time that the music fits, but it was just it, you just felt the energy of of the music, and especially if Scott was kind of a newer thing to you, it it just uh, yeah, it's me speaking personally, transformative in that in that sort of way of uh, you know discovering a new genre, you know, a new sound, and then realizing it's a genre, then realizing there's a subculture attached to it, and realizing there's there's all these bands and there's pretty much seemingly endless avenues to dig into and that's something that is super exciting it doesn't really come into your life all that often it's interesting because it's like you know whatever you're steeped in at the the time you know you're kind of like whatever your expectations are for for sound and like i think a lot of the stuff that you kind of go like consume either is either records you don't um you don't know or sometimes even compilations and i remember you know like uh, Epitaph or Warped or Punkorama or these different like co- compilations would come out and there there would be you know uh, a Hepcat or uh, uh, I'm trying to think of like the reggae bands that like they would you know be playing more of a traditional sound and I'm always like what is this? Yeah. It's just like you, you're not ready to receive it you're not ready to receive that message at that time in your life and then all of a sudden it's like oh this is all clicking now it's like down the road you, you start experiencing things, you put things into more of a context um, musically and like, oh, this is, this is wonderful. And um, I mean, that's what, um, when I, when I met Aaron, um, I don't know, might've been late 2000s. I think we, uh, I mean, we, we met at ska shows um, and stuff like that, but it was like, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, there's more to this. Like there's, you know, and, and Aaron does a lot of DJing, um, uh, at some of these shows and it's like oh he's playing some really cool traditional tunes you know like these these 60s ska and rock study and i i you start asking questions you start digging more and there's just more and more and more there's more to figure out there's more to discover there's more like there and if if you want if if that's what you want to get into you can really uh you can spend the rest of your life kind of going down that rabbit hole i think that's <laughs> that's where i find myself right now it's like i'm just down a rabbit hole and i kind of like it down here that's that's like going into a record store, man. It's like rabbit hole city. I uh, yep. I, I yeah, it, and it's it's never ending. I've been in that rabbit hole for for a long time, and it's fun. So good uh, rabbit hole. Yeah, speaking of record stores, let me ask you guys. I mean, it's got to be a blessing and a curse. But uh, what is your feelings on like Spotify? I'm not on Spotify personally, so I can't really, I can't attest to it much. I, I I think there's uh, good feelings and bad feelings towards it. Like, dare I dare I call it like the digital music revolution? You know, because your your music now is basically accessible to anybody that wants to listen to it for a, a nominal fee. So I mean, that's that's got to detract a little bit from what your revenues are. But at the same time, more people are getting to listen to it. Yeah, we, you know, we've never been a band that has been revenue first. So it's that comes as sort of a minor inconvenience on the back end personally my major beef with spotify is just how blood-suckingly corporate it is it's not even just the uh not paying artists you know royalties that seem to be on par with other content delivery systems but the fact that it it stands in such a monolithic uh content delivery system that is only challenged by like apple music like another corporate behemoth coming out and amazon music and you know the you know, Google or YouTube Music or whatever. So it is. Uh, it kind of feels like a return to the days of 
you know, just major, major record labels controlling everything. And you, you guys probably do Spotify. What are your thoughts? Oh, I mean, I, I, I use it, um, but it's not, um, I, I, I agree. Like they're, <laughs> it seems, especially now that they're like in the podcast game too, it's their goal as a company isn't to like, let's give you new music or let's, let's invest in artists and in the music and be like in, in that game. It's more, we want to consume your time. Your time belongs on this platform and we'll do whatever it takes to keep you on this platform as long as we can. And then I, like you said, Aaron, on top of it, then they, you know, then they, they pay you absolute peanuts or whatever, but like that, that doesn't necessarily, um, bother me as much as it might like a traditional like band from back in the day where it's like yeah hey i've been i'm counting on my you know i need to be able to pay my mortgage i need to be able to pay my bills you know for um uh, based off of this i we've we've always kind of been kind of free from that sort of uh that sort of thought but um yeah like it is convenient but you know there's a, there's no free lunch in nature i've always thought so it's like you know what price is being paid for that convenience there's there's a price being paid somewhere
funny because I, I use Spotify pretty heavily, especially for the podcasts and stuff, because there's just so much content on there. And if I were to try to find it all myself, I would fail miserably and be even broker than I am. But uh, right. it, it kills me because I, I do this podcast and then there's a couple others that I do, you know, and uh, everyone seems to think that I make money doing it. And it's just it's a labor of love entirely, you know, because I believe in the scene. I believe in the band. So I want to do what I can to get the music out there, you know everybody's kind of a happy family. Right. We appreciate it, Phil. And furthermore, I do, uh, the, the, the podcast here is also syndicated on a UK internet radio station. So the, the gentleman that runs that, he actually pays royalties on everything that we spin on the station. So, um, I've taken rock study tonight as a podcast and put it on the Spotify, right? Cause I figure what the hell, everything is on the up and up, you know, royalties are being paid and they won't allow it because, uh, they, they don't want me making money on something that they should be making money on, even though there's not a cent that changes hands. So it really makes me quite sour because, I mean, Apple has no problem hosting my, my podcast. And it's like Spotify. I don't know. They're soulless, soulless corporate <laughs> bastards. Yeah. Yeah. It is weird just how the the industry will, it changes with technology. And, and you know, part of me thinks that it's, you know, if you were if you were still going to go the route of the old school hustler, let's say, you know, you could have a podcast, but you could you could make money by getting all these, you know, getting sponsors for your show and getting all this. But then it's like you get to a point where you realize, like, well, am I running a podcast or am I am I running uh, an underwriting scheme where I'm I'm just collecting advertisers and I'm spending most of my time trying to track down. Uh, sponsors for the show and I'm working on sponsorships and I'm working on sponsor graphics and I don't even have, I don't have time to think about what music I want to play or being guests I want to have on. I'm not saying that that's your, your situation necessarily, but you know, as a, as a band, it kind of feels like that sometimes where uh, you go through these great creative modes where you're rehearsing a lot and you're writing new music and stuff. And then you go through these modes where, especially if you're planning a CD release or something where it's, like business mode. It's like, okay, someone needs to design this poster. Someone needs to work with the pressing plant. Somebody needs to be um, like maintaining all the, the social media kind of stuff in that time. And it's, you know, at least it's cyclical, you know, in a band where it's like, okay, we do all this work to get this record out or do all this work to promote this big concert. Uh, but you go back into those creative modes at, at some time. So for somebody like me, who's not very business, uh, it's not that I'm not business savvy. It's just that it's not my not my wheelhouse. Um, I like to spend more time in that creative realm, but super fortunate to have Courtney being a very business savvy person. I would say, Courtney, you have your shit together. Thank you for that. Everyone, <laughs> everyone has their shit together to a certain degree in this band. Uh, but as Courtney was saying, like he's broadcasting from the the merch lair right now, um, and has really helped band like carrying carrying the band forward, especially in these times of, of quarantine where basically a lot of our, our interactions are, are digital. So that's an area where I am less comfortable. So Courtney, you just got to stay very thankful to you for, for all the work you've done this past nine months or so. Continue. Thanks, Aaron. Keeping everything afloat. Yeah, it's been crazy. You know, we, we as a band, we you know, we, we're used to in normal times being together like a lot. You know, at, at least once a week to rehearse. And you know, ever since March, we haven't really seen each other 
And, you know, we've gotten together um, twice. We did a, a video um, that we put out for uh, the Supernova um, Ska Festival. Um, they did it virtual this year. And then we've got, we've got coming up um, on December 4th is our Follow My Sound uh, 10th anniversary concert. Uh, we were able to actually get together in the studio um, here in Minneapolis, basically perform our, our album from front to back. And, you know, it's like we didn't we don't you know, it's like we are super joyful in that moment to, to, to be together um, because it's like there's those times are so precious right now because we like I mean, unless we're doing this or we're Zoom calling or something it's like we don't see each other, you know, or we just see each other in a group text, you know, that's hard it's really hard as a band right now now how many of you are there on a regular basis oh we've got six members and depending on whether or not we you know we add a horn here or um you know guitar here like we 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 can have around seven or eight but um yeah right now we're we're operating around six nice Uh, i I will say another thing though that the maybe positive thing about this pandemic not you know not to be totally doom and gloom but so on the positive side, it is kind of nice. As much as I love playing shows and um, you know, you know, doing stuff like that, it's kind of nice to have a bit of a break from that, to sort of to step back and we can focus on. Like I've been been writing some new stuff, and it's going a little slower than it usually would if we were rehearsing on a weekly basis and you know throw ideas around. But uh, there's I've seen a lot of transformation in music. Like see, there's going to be this very interesting. Uh, you know, look back on 2020 and probably 2021, maybe the next the following year, even if we're being honest, where we're going to see an era of music that was recorded for the most part in quarantine. <laughs> there True. are a lot of people that are putting albums out, people doing different collaborations, people playing with each, you know, playing music with each other that, you know, they may not have ever, ever thought possible before. So people that are finally getting into some home recording stuff because it's it's really accessible to do right now, and it's uh, you know there's the learning curve is probably a bit lower now. I know there's a lot of uh, new services interfaces where it's a lot easier to learn how to do, and the the quality in general is a bit better. So um, you know we were fortunate enough to, to, like Courtney said, to actually go into the studio and record a whole thing live together because that's the way we love doing it. I mean, me personally, I loved the, the live chemistry vibe. I love getting that recorded rather than doing it track by track. Um, but some bands do track by track very, very well and still get a great vibe. So heard a lot of really interesting things over this past eight months or so that we would not have heard otherwise. So, uh, Good or bad, I think that looking back on this time in music is going to be very interesting and kind of pick apart. And music scholars are going to be looking at at what was recorded in quarantine, what was uh, essentially using this new technology to make music. And uh, I think that's really cool. You know, I think uh, a result of it, too, I mean, with a lot of venues closing and stuff, I think the the music scene in general is going to probably end up taking a whole lot more of a DIY approach and probably end up seeing a lot more like shows happening in like people's basements and like in their garages and stuff because I mean bands are still going to want to tour and people are still going to want to see them but there's just going to be fewer outlets for that to happen 
but uh, I think I think it's cool if that happens because I always thought it was a pretty interesting approach, especially like the American root scene is very much like that. And uh, I think it's pretty fantastic. And I think Scott would be very successful that way as well because, I mean, people just flock to it. You know, it's it's a it's more of a movement than it is a music scene. Yeah, very true. One of the things that I've been thinking about, sorry, I don't mean to dominate the, the chat here. I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, talking to some some older musician friends of mine who talk about touring like in the seventies and the eighties, you know, they talk about going on, on tour and they have their, their tour van and then they have their U-Haul van that's traveling with them with the entire sound system because it wasn't really common for bars and clubs to have their own PA and their own sound person and everything like that. And they may have a stage, but if you're, if you're on tour and you're doing a show someplace like you're, you know, if it's the if it's the late seventies, chances are the club doesn't supply, supply their own PA or mics or gear. So you have your own sound person. You set up all the gear and you tear it all down. It's part of your whole show. Uh, so with a lot of venues closing now, and in, 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 you know, maybe, you know, bars shutting down. You know, a lot of those are places that we've kind of taken for granted as a band that you go there and they have everything there. And there's there's a person on staff who not only sets up your band, but they engineer the sound the entire night for every band on there, and they they clean that up. They they take care of that, uh, which is something that I think is very easy to take for granted. And for anyone who's ever taken advantage of of a sound engineer, I know I know you can agree with that that statement. That you realize like like sound engineers are awesome, and we. I'm sure a lot of them are out of work right now. Mark goes out to all of you. And, you know, I hope that there are a million opportunities when when things finally lift, because we're going to need sound engineers. We're going to need people to know how to rig up speakers, people that can can mix a band or even even somebody just with a band. They can help bring stuff down. Like, yeah, if it is a, you know, a church basement show or you know, like a, a, a rental hall, a community center, we might see a return to that kind of thing. Um, it does kind of remind me of hearing about sound system culture, both in Jamaica and in, in England, where uh, you would, if you want to throw a party, you would literally bring the party. Like it would just be an empty space. You have to bring in all the speakers, bring in all the records, bring in all the booze and food and the rum. And you would, you basically would do everything yourself because there was not the infrastructure in which to do it. So as, as much as it hurts my heart to see so many venues closing and struggling and just the, the whole landscape of live music is being transformed right now. Um, I think there are, I have hope that there are a lot of creative and talented people that are going to find a way to make things work again and, and, and work for us. Us, you know, putting together our own shows. And I mean, I mean, us as a collective music lovers where the uh and that's that's a place where i think the corporate entities within the music business like spotify and apple music and all that i don't think they're going to be able to to touch that because they don't have that sort of reach that connection with people as as individuals
you're going to have to rely kind of on the, 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 the hearts and passion of music lovers and pooling together skills. And it's going to, it's going to require lots of creativity. Um, but I think creativity can flourish under like constraints like we've been put under. And I think like Aaron pointed out, there's, there's some of that that's happening, but, um, yeah, uh, I don't know what, I don't know what shows are going to look like going forward, but, um, this new technology at least, being able to like stream shows, kind of have control over your own sort of streaming um, is is kind of an interesting, um, I don't know, stopgap um, until uh, we're safely able to do shows again. Yeah, it's been nice being able to stream some stuff. What are some of the coolest streams or, or most creative or interesting you know, musical things you've seen under quarantine? Anything that, that's like notable to you? Uh, just the fact that anybody's even streaming at all, I think is pretty awesome. I mean, uh, I, I've done a couple of slacker shows so far, which were pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think, uh, what is it? Specialized project in the UK. They've been doing some really neat stuff with some pretty huge mm-hmm. stuff. And, uh, even myself, I did, um, I did actually two online festivals because I, I do like a Celtic rock or Celtic punk podcast. So uh, I've done two and ten hour festivals. So I, I just think it's really awesome that people are having the ingenuity to just do it. Yeah, and just that, that that connection for sure. Yeah, I know the like the specialized project they just had the big one or you know the big virtual festival, and uh, I know they tried to get bands from all over the world on that normally, mm-hmm. but with with a virtual festival, it's like the reach, the amount of bands they can get there is is, is limited to just the band's ability to make a video. You know, so it's not even like they have to travel right. all the way to England. So the exposure mm-hmm. for for some bands that may be in like Jakarta or something like that can actually get an audience without having to yeah spend thousands and thousands of dollars to, to travel. Yeah, I, I know the the last live event that I saw from the Slackers, they had T Bone who was from Thailand, and uh, that was pretty cool because I wouldn't have probably ever heard of them if it weren't for that live stream. Yeah, that's awesome that they, they do that. Um, I remember watching the. It was one of the first first live streams the Slackers did. They had um, like the Pie Tasters, Cat Bite, but they also had Barstool Preachers, which are not a ska band. Right. I saw so many people after that stream talking about Barstool Preachers and checking them out because it was a it was a simply recorded performance, but it was like either at a small venue or a rehearsal space, but it was just a run on shot of the band playing. It sounded good. And it, it felt like a live show. It was, it was very much like seeing a good live rock and roll band. And even though people tuned in to see the slackers and see, see Scott and reggae stuff, you know, seeing another band that's kind of seen adjacent that the slackers liked playing with a lot and had that same kind of energy, uh, seeing how positively people reacted to that, you know, band they, they didn't know or didn't know much about. And, you know, they have this, this big new audience now because of the, uh, the technology that we're using in, uh, in these times. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. That, that was, that was a really good show too. It's funny because what, while they perhaps aren't a ska band per se, I think some of their earlier stuff was definitely on the fringes of ska music. I'll have to, I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Cause I was one of those people who didn't know anything about the band other than their name. So it was cool to actually get, you see like a whole set. What are some of your more favorite collaborations that you've seen or, or possibly even been a part of during this whole quarantine? For me, the first one that comes out is uh, 
uh, what were they? I forget what they call themselves off the top of my head, but um, it was Greg Narvis from Hepcat that speared it, but they did a couple tunes. So it was like, yeah, him and Colin Giles, uh, or Giles, sorry if I'm mispronouncing your last name, Colin, but another just, you know, group of LA Scott veterans doing some tunes. And what one that they did, uh, a sort of a parody cover of Stop the Violence by the Valentines slash Silvertones. Uh, but they changed the words to stop the virus and it was all about <laughs> life during COVID and they changed the lyrics to be extremely clever, but fitting with the original song. And yeah, it was fantastic. So that, that to me, because that was just in my head, I, I love the original song they covered, but just their version was in my head for a good week or two after that. Um, it was a, it was a hopeful thing. It was like it was it was pretty early on too in the pandemic when I saw it released, like either May or, or June or something. But that that was the first time I saw something about collaborations during uh, pandemic and lockdown, and seeing like wow, people are really having some some fun with this and being creative to to make music for people, and I think that's amazing. I think a lot of them guys out in California have been doing some pretty awesome collaborations. Like uh, Jesse Wagner's done a bunch of stuff too, and everything he touches, I think, turns to gold. Just my my personal opinion. But I'm like sure. I'm like an aggro wench. So, <laughs> <laughs> how about you, Tony? You've been you've been kind of quiet. Any collaborations you've seen? I'm just trying to think now because I've just been listening to like the same three songs for like the last like month, and so that's that's all I do. What three songs? Uh, Wow, uh, it's um, what was it? I did, the under my thumb cover. Someone just posted that online recently. That uh, the Phoenix City All Stars did. So then I'm I'm looking up different versions of under my thumb, and now I'm going down the rabbit hole about that song and how someone was trampled uh, during a Stones concert to that song. Oh. Uh, so then there's all these factoids you get to go down, learn about that, and then. Which live version of the song is the best performed one? Then you get to figure that out. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now, just uh, nerding out about one hyper-specific thing. Nice. I've been doing plenty of that, too. <laughs> it's, it's easy to go down rabbit holes. Bandcamp's been doing you guys pretty solid, too, I think, huh? Yeah. Yeah. We absolutely love Bandcamp. Um, it's been so easy for us to kind of get our stuff out there. Um, and they've been really, really uh, easy to work with as far as um, they've got their Bandcamp Fridays um, and we've got one coming up December 4th. But I mean, every, I think it's been pretty much um, every month this, during the pandemic, they've had a, you know, a, a day where everything that you sell doesn't, you know, they don't take their cut. And uh, that's been really, I mean, we've seen a lot of uh, traffic from folks um, coming in, checking out um, us for the first time, even. Um, so that that's been really cool. Um, and then uh, we're hoping to to try out their new live streaming for our for the Follow My Sound uh, uh, concert on uh, December fourth. Um, so we're going to have a, a, an actual live album of of the recording that we did uh, during that concert um, that'll be available as well. And then. Um, we'll be taking some pre-orders for um, a cassette version of it that we'll be putting out sometime shortly. It just blows my mind that cassettes are cool again. <laughs> Who knew, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, 
it, it has that that aesthetic to it, and uh, yeah, it's weird. I never thought tapes had a, had a, a, a superior audio audio quality, but they ha definitely have their own unique audio quality. And I think for anyone who has listened to enough cassettes over enough time, I think there's there's a comfort in listening to something on a cassette and also having a physical medium in which to listen to. That was, that was my other thing about thing about Spotify is like there's there's no guarantee that your music library is going to be anywhere resembling something you can listen to in ten years as the tech changes. Like that's not that's not part of their business model to protect a long term music archiving. Like they do it for as long as it's profitable. And I'm not trying trying to sound like such a socialist curmudgeon, but uh, you know you buy a tape. You know, you know, as long as you have a tape player and and some batteries or access to some electrical power, like you can listen to that music. I think it's just the geezers my age that uh, are are being sentimentalists. <laughs> well, whatever it may be. You have, gap, though. you have this gap where you have there's also the uh, the retro like missed nostalgia kind of thing of uh, you know people who grew up where you know cassettes weren't as common, but uh, you know, thanks to things like, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy was very heavy on pushing the, you know, the 80s vibe and like the, the mixtape kind of things. So I think there's there's an enduring retro vibe to that, that either people like re-experiencing it or sort of, re you know, experiencing something for the first time, you know, like it's, I don't know how much of that has anything to do with it, but I would imagine that that's sort of a, I mean, especially growing up in more of like, when you start buying music, you start buying music digitally, you know, thinking for the people who are, you know, in their teens or like their early twenties and like a CD player now is probably still more common than a tape player, but not by as much as it was five or 10 years ago. Oh, so boy. if you're going to, if you're going to sell somebody an audio relic, you know, be it a CD, a record or a cassette tape, none of those players are the, the prominent thing right now like you actually have to find the piece of of hardware plug it in get it preamped properly have it set up you know set up so it actually plays through a receiver and then a, and then a set of speakers um you know even like you know bluetooth speaker that you can have an, uh, an an auxiliary jack go into it's like you're still gonna have to find a cassette player or you know a a, a turntable and preamp or a you know cd player or walkman or, or whatever if you want to play something so maybe the cassette medium just doesn't feel as distant now as it did back when everyone had a cd player in their car and everyone had a cd player in their house somewhere you know circling back to that comment you made about how uh, kids today are picking up you know for their like their first music they're getting as digital I, I feel really bad for them because i mean when i was young if it wouldn't have been for physical media i would have been able to branch out into so many different bands because reading liner notes you know i remember uh like one of the first first cassette tapes that I probably ever picked up was like Ride the Lightning by Metallica, you know, and reading the liner notes was like so enlightening because it's like, oh, they think this band, this band and this band. So the next time I'd go to the record store, you know, I'd be looking through who they were thanking and referencing. And the same thing with like, yeah, punk. I wouldn't know who Diamond Head is, you know, yeah, <laughs> or, or the Misfits for that matter. Motorhead. <laughs> right. Well, I and that it's funny. Ride the Lightning. I, I definitely I, I was I was the kid that went to the library um, and checked out a bunch of CDs and dubbed them to tapes because my, my car only had a tape player. So I had, you know, all sorts of, you know, whether it's, you know, heavy metal or, or 
punk or thrash, you know, just, or even hip hop. I just, you know, whatever was cool, I could get my hands on at the library. I would dub it onto tape and not every tape could um, hold an entire album either. That was always good. It's like, yeah, no, I, I can, I can get the first seven and a half songs in that one song. I always know I, in my head, it's like, it stops at a minute and 17 seconds and then it runs out of tape. And, and it was always the best song on the album. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The good old days. I remember, uh, mixtapes and, and what have you, you know, I was just, I was like a music nerd. I would collect everything that I could get my hands on. So it, probably because I couldn't play a damn thing. I had to, I had to just listen to everything I could find. Yeah. That, that's part of it though. You know, being, being able to play music is different from, you know, being a good musician. I think, you know, there's a uh, loving the music first and foremost is, is the, the most important thing. You know, I, that's the way I always feel about it. <laughs> www.skullandsoul.com For all things Trojan, from button-down shirts to classic tees and knitwear, monkey jackets, Harrington's, and even Parkers, it has to be skullandsoul.com for the spirit of 69. And don't forget to mention Boot Boy Radio. Boot Boy Radio, brought to you in association with linkspropertymaintenance.co.uk. Hey everybody, this is Phil. I hope you are enjoying the special interview that I had with the prize fighters from last week. Just want to remind you that if you're not doing nothing tomorrow, make sure you're checking out the prize fighters uh, Facebook page. They are doing a live show to commemorate their first album that was released 10 years ago they're playing it front to back or back to front no matter how you look at it and uh, should be a fantastically good time now we're gonna get back to the tunes
always wanted to learn how to read music as opposed to just reading tab. You know, I'm, I guess I'm more scholarly, or I like to think that I am. It's yeah, a, I still I still can't read music. Really? That's, uh, that's where these boys definitely excel. They they're they're classically trained, institutionally proven for <laughs> my shows. I Tony tells me how how to play, and then I play it that way. <laughs> <laughs> It amazes me how many musicians can't read music. You know, they just go by feel or they can play by ear. And it's like, you, you really got to know your shit to be able to play by ear, I think. I mean, it's like anything else. It's uh, it's an extension of your muscle memory and you have to practice it enough to make it feel natural. Because nothing is just going to feel natural with, without putting the time in. So it's uh, if you if you love music and you want to play music, then that's that's what's going to push you to put the time in rather than just uh, like, Oh, my stepmom's making me take piano lessons. I need to get through this every, you know, every week and then endure a recital that I am absolutely dreading. I didn't take piano lessons. So I'm not speaking from personal experience here. But (laughs) So let me ask you, I I've not heard of many other bands, ska bands from, uh, from Minnesota. What is the scene like there, other than you guys? We've been, we've been playing. I mean, that's yeah. We've all played in in ska bands in different bands for years. Um, you know, from high school on. Um, so it's it's definitely um, sort of a, a, an underground sort of thing. I mean, there's not there's there's not like a huge scene, and, and it definitely has you know over the years has has come and gone um, in, in popularity. You see a, you know, a, a bunch of bands pop up and then those bands, you know, go away. And they, oftentimes they'll break down, reconfigure, the members will reconfigure themselves into other bands and, and it kind of lives on. But, you know, back uh, definitely in the, in the, the 90s, um, there were a lot of um, bands that were kind of a part of that same third wave uh, like explosion. I mean, Umbrella Bed is still a band, and they've been around since I don't know early nineties. Ninety five, I think, is when they started. Okay, okay, yeah, mid nineties. So I mean, yeah, and, and actually, Aaron played in that band for a while um, before starting the Prize Fighters. Nice. Yeah, I, I'm, anything from the Midwest, I, I don't know a heck of a lot about. You know, the East Coast, that's another story. West Coast, that's another story. But you get in the middle of the country, and maybe it's just because it's so sparsely populated. But uh, I can never really think of anything. Yeah. I, th- I think a lot of it is, is uh, touring is a bit harder in the Midwest because you don't, like if you're really going to, if you're going to tour, you need to drive seven, eight hours to get to the next major market or, or else you, you play you know, like do a, do the casino circuit or something like that, which is a, a, an okay way to make gig money, but it's not a great way to build like a, a following of, of ska scene people. Uh, you know, when we, we haven't done a ton of touring, but when we were, you know, last summer we were on the, we made our way out to the East Coast and, you know, had, had long van days, but had some extremely short van days where it's like, oh, we only have a two hour drive. Like we can actually like go to the beach and we can hang out or we can, we're not super stressed for, you know, getting someplace at a particular time. And you see like, there's all these networks of clubs and, and bands and it's like oh yeah we can play this it's so much easier to go play a different market when you have the the towns more closely packed together 
Chicago is, oh, is our closest big big market. Chicago is is still a seven hour drive from the Twin Cities. So it's wow. it's like you know you you look at it on a map, it's like oh that looks pretty pretty close, uh, but it's still you know an entire day's worth of driving just to get from one to the other. Yeah, that's a long drive, at least for one gig. Right, and we've had to turn down several gigs from people who assumed we were from Chicago just because we had played there often enough. It's like oh. Well, we could do that, but we, you know, we need to we need gas money for the seven, eight hour drive and watching and all that. So, yeah, Chicago's got a really cool music scene too, just in general, you know, because it, it seems like uh, every every band in Chicago can like play with every other band regardless of what genre they come from, which is a really neat dynamic that you don't see in a lot of areas. Yeah, it's it's such a huge city. Like every time I go to Chicago, I'm just amazed at how sprawling and, and huge not only just the the, the surrounding area is but like the city itself and there, there are, are all these little pockets where it's not quite as like new like new york it's like you know there, there are people who will they'll go see a band if it's in their area but they're not gonna go like take like an hour train ride to another borough to see a band sometimes and i think chicago might be a bit of the same well maybe not as not as much but i know that it's it's again it's that if you have to drive a, a ton of hours, that time to get someplace, it just makes it a bit a bit harder. But in a place like Chicago that is so big, like you can have you know these enclaves where people people go to the show if they live closer to that venue because it can take you know to get to like Blue Island to Evanston can take like two hours in the wrong traffic, and that's just Chicago people. Tell me if I'm totally off base there, but I know that uh, I know that traffic can be a nightmare. You know, I've always been jealous of Europe because it seems like they've got a really rich live music culture there. Because it's like all the pictures of shows and festivals that I see, it's just like people packed out the back of the, the venue, you know. And very seldomly do I see that in the United States. And it really makes me sour for all the awesome entertainment there is. It's like, how, how can you justify bringing a band from the West Coast to the East Coast knowing that you might only get 12 people to show up at the gig? You right. Know? And there's yeah. no- and- Chicago, I mean, that's the stop. I mean, everybody, you know, it's a huge market. It's whatever it is, the third largest city in the U.S. So, I mean, every tour stops in Chicago pretty much, you know. Phil, did, did, were, you, were you talking about Europe? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I, I, I would be interested in, in uh, Tony, hearing your your impressions of, of touring in Europe. I know, like, when we were there, it was our, our tour routing was very... Long, like all all over the place so we did have super long band days there but but europe is another kind of place where you can do just stay in germany and if you hit the towns right it's not a ton of driving it does kind of seem like an east coast of the u.s sort of thing where every three four hours there's a there's a town that has a youth club that has shows and has good relationships with a lot of these underground ska and punk labels and there's, there's like a scene around all those so it's like, wait, what? Like, what was your guys' impression of though playing in those clubs? Well, like, I guess Tony, sorry, you weren't on that, that tour. Have you, have you, have you been, have you been to Europe? You've toured Europe. Yeah, I have. Yeah. I have. Uh, it's really interesting because there's a lot more funding for like festivals and events like that. But the really interesting thing is that there's um, not a lot of. Or, or, or there's le- there's less musicians overall uh, and everything. So and 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 so like for instance, how many people in, in the states here do you know used to play in music classes in school? You know, it's almost everyone. It was in band or orchestra or choir. 
uh, or for whatever reason. But in, in Europe, they have that conservatory system where it's a little bit more select and a little bit more privatized. And, uh, yeah, there's not as many, uh, you know, you just can't find, you know, everyone, the four guys on the street that used to have a band instrument in their attic or whatever, you know. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and touring in Europe, I, I mean, the only thing I can say is, like, it's, like, night and day different than touring in the U.S. It's just, like, the clubs are different. Uh, oh, yeah. Like, you know, you, you show up and, like, you know, in in, in a typical club in the U.S., you'll, they'll, you'll get a, a drink ticket. Maybe you might get some extra, you know, or, you know, oh, yeah, we got a, we got a, we got a case of PBR in the back. There you guys go. And in, I just remember in Europe, it were in, there was some place in Germany for sure. I remember we were loading in and there was all this stuff in the green room. I was like, wow, this is great. This is going to be, you know, like we're actually going to be able to eat dinner tonight. This is awesome. And the guy's like, oh, dinner, this isn't dinner. This is the load-in snacks. You know, you, you, dinner is is arriving after sound check. And we're like, what? what's going on here? It was like we were, we, we were in like a Twilight Zone or something. It was just like weird. It was like we aren't used to that sort of um, like, I don't know, respect or appreciation. So I, that, that's my, that was always my take on Europe. It's like I would go back in a heartbeat for sure. Well, um, the, 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 funny, the funny thing about that story too is uh... – I think we had heard people that had been to Europe like talk about that. I, th- I think it was the club in, in Lubeck, um, and we, people were telling us like, "Oh yeah, like you will you will eat so well there. They treat vans so well." So I think we kind of had that sense that oh, this this is the place with really good food. Um, the guy that there's a guy that just is there to make food and, and, and it's awesome. And uh, we were talking about like how how great it was like oh yeah we see what you mean and then we learned like oh wait that's not the normal guy that was just some someone else kind of filling in like the <laughs> sounds like a fun place yeah. to be yeah if you're hungry and you're a musician Europe <laughs> I recommend Europe. <laughs>
some of your favorite places to play in the u.s is it hard to put a finger on it well wasn't the uh the lookout lounge in omaha nebraska did we we just played there for ska barbecue right that they uh (laughs) didn't they weren't they just like mentioned on uh stephen cole on uh no it was on um last week tonight and then they had to close like a week later oh no um yeah they got a national shot out there which is kind of funny um yeah, that was, yeah. yeah it was, i i forgot they closed that's that sucks we played a lot of uh, a few theaters um uh i actually think the the place we played in montreal was really cool um club soda i thought i liked that that place that was a good room yeah yeah that was awesome but also uh one of the one of the cooler clubs that we did we hit on uh our East Coast tour was in Swarthmore, the like, Warehouse 3. We played there with Catbite, and it's it, it's cool because it was right by this college, but it was it was kind of like this um, this like warehouse sort of shed, um, and it, it was had all these like eclectic like uh, sign like like it almost looked like like a uh, like a factory where they had made a bunch of like road signs or like old antiques and stuff and. They turned it into a music venue. Um, I think Catbite did one of their quarantine. Uh, actually, no, their set from uh, the Slackers live stream. I think they did from uh, Warehouse Three, and that place is yeah. it is really really cool. So, Courtney, you were just talking about playing Club Soda in Montreal. Just remember, just remember driving 
there because we came up through uh, we played Toronto first and then been out to Montreal. The freeway in Canada doesn't turn. It's a long drive from like, Toronto to Montreal. The, the U.S. interstate system has to the roads have to turn every several miles. There has to be a bend in the road so you don't get just total tunnel vision. But that's not how the freeway was constructed in Canada. So I just remember driving on it and, and kind of being like, what, 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 what's happening? Like, why is this so different to drive on? And then, and then Courtney, how many hours straight did you drive on the way back from that? Oh, geez. Well, I, th- it was like two straight days that we, that we as a uh, band uh, took. I, I think I drove probably from Toronto all the way to Chicago and then I took back over in Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> it was like, I drove most of that drive, but I, what I, we were so like, uh, that, that, <laughs> that trip was so crazy just cause it was like, we, we played these like kind of faraway spots. Like I think we played, um, in Wisconsin, we played then the next night in Detroit, which so that was an eight hour drive. And then we drove into Toronto for the next day and then Montreal ska festival. Um, we did two sets because we did uh, we played uh, some prize fighters songs and then we were we were actually the backing band for Roy and Yvonne um, and then the slackers ended the night and as soon as the slackers were done the stage manager is like trying to hurt us all together it was very um, like basically saying hey we've got ten minutes before we have to like lock the doors on this place. Otherwise we have to pay some giant like deposit or something because there was some sort of curfew. And none of us had, you know, we were all in like the, our formal suits for the, you know, for stage. And none of our stuff had been loaded out yet. And it's downpouring rain. And we're just scrambling to try to get everything together and in the van. And then after that, it was like, okay, we were supposed to go to um, an after party. There was like a, a bar someplace. And it, I don't think it was very close, but we ended up walking because we didn't, we knew that there wasn't going to be a spot to park the van. So we're like walking in the rain in our suits. I'm carrying a giant box of uh, jump up merchandise <laughs> with us. Uh, we get to this packed bar and Danny Rebel and the KGB, I think, are playing. And it's just, you know, asses to elbows in there. And um, we were uh, drinking and having fun with, like, the slackers. But in the back of my mind, I'm just – I'm not having fun at all because I'm like, if we don't leave by 9 a.m. tomorrow morning and drive straight back to Minneapolis, we're going to have to pay a fine on our, our – our, our pay for an extra day of our rental van. So I'm just sitting there going, like, trying to, like like – how am I going to do this? You know, we're all going to oversleep, but it's never going to work. And so it, I just remember feeling lots of stress, even though it was like a, such a fantastic place in the show, but it's like, we couldn't really get to enjoy Montreal because it was like a stress dream or something. <laughs> That's brutal. Well, we weren't, we weren't there to enjoy ourselves. We were there to have let others enjoy themselves, I guess. Yeah. But I, I enjoyed myself thoroughly. I was just thinking about that after party uh, yesterday. Just, just, uh, yeah, how great that was. Walking to a packed bar, and it, was, it wasn't was like there was a stage. Like, yeah, Danny Rebel and the KGB were just set up just right by the door. Just yeah, it was like in the foyer. It was like two hours straight <laughs> or something like that. Just uh, And just a ton of energy. It was, it was great. 
So uh, real quick, one last time, why don't you uh, tell some folks how they can listen to this live stream you got going on December 4th? Sure. Um, so we, we're, we've got uh, FMSX, Follow My Sound 10 is the, the name of the concert film and uh, the live album. Um, and that'll be available on our Bandcamp site. And it hopefully will be streaming on Bandcamp Live as well on uh, December 4th. And then there will also be pre-orders for uh, the cassette tape physical version of that, that live album. Um, and if you want more information on it, um, you know, find us on Facebook. Um, the Facebook event will give you the, the link um, and you'll be able to get access and uh, get tickets for that event. Excellent, excellent stuff. Well, guys, I want to uh, thank you for hanging out with me for a while. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yes, it was nice to see you. Absolutely. I, I can't wait till this whole pandemic stuff is done so you guys can hit the road because I, I want you to come to my neck of the woods. <sighs> Hell, I'll even put you all up for the night so you can save on hotel money. Absolutely. As long there as you, you can uh, have us avoid those Pennsylvania tolls, man, those things are no joke. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, gentlemen, I guess, uh, I guess I'll bid you a good evening. Hope you enjoy what remains of your weekends. Sure. Yeah, man. Thanks, a lot, yeah. yeah thanks a lot. You're very welcome. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Cheers, everybody. Stay safe.
the prize fighters and you're listening to rock steady tonight well my friends it looks like we've come to the end of yet another show hope you enjoyed the interview with prize fighters if you were not a fan of them before make sure you're checking out their music and if you didn't listen to the interview go back and listen to it again these guys are just absolutely fantastic they live the music they play and i think that's just a, a absolutely quality thing because, you know, they're not in it for the money. They are in it for the music. Make sure you're checking out their live stream tomorrow night. It should be a fantastic time. Like they were saying, you can pick it up off their Facebook page. And uh, any information you need on it will be found there as well. And make sure you're checking out the new album when it's released. You heard some tracks off it tonight. But uh, I got one track, maybe two to take you out with. So, without further ado, my friends, I will see you back here on Sunday. 5.30 p.m. to 7 p.m. You find us on social media. We got Facebook and Instagram. Just look up Rock Study Tonight. There's Rock Study Tonight podcast on YouTube and, of course, www.rockstudytonight.com, which is where this show will be going momentarily. And keeping with the theme here, I'm going to play you one more tune by the Prize Fighters. This is Burnt Toast and Black Coffee, the way I like my breakfast. This is Phil, and I'll catch you all soon. <laughs> 
virus, stop the virus, stop the virus.